Friends and brethren, there's a dirty little secret in the Church of Christ. And as Cody alluded to in the introduction, it's a dirty little secret because, as he said, we don't talk about it as often as we should. But unfortunately, we do talk about it a lot behind closed doors. And that's a problem. Now, before I tell you what the dirty little secret is, which I think you already know, I want you to go with me for just a moment and go back to the time when you were a new Christian. Or imagine being a new Christian. You have just put on Christ in baptism. You are now saved from your sins. And you have been taught and are looking forward to being a part of God's chosen people. That holy nation. That, that family of God where these people are striving to get to heaven and there's harmony and peace and people who think the way I do and people who are like me and have all the different things in common. Only to find out not everyone thinks the way you do. Not everyone in the church is as nice and kind as they should be. Now, I call it a dirty little secret because, you see, from the outside world, a lot of people look at the church and they see the message that we send. We're disciples of Jesus, and so there's peace and harmony and unity And so when something happens that spills outside of the church like a conflict, then it's shocking. And that's why we call it a dirty little secret, because that's what they see. They see all this dirty laundry that is leaked out, and all the dirty little secret that's in the church. And while it's an unfortunate reality, and it's sad, conflict will exist in the church and does exist, And we need to understand that even though there's envy and strife and backbiting that does occur within the church, we need to understand that there is a way of dealing with it. And that's what we're talking about today. So despite our best efforts, there are brethren in the church who are going to be contentious. There are brethren in the church that are going to cause problems for us. There's times whenever these things are going to happen. And I call it a a dirty little secret, and it's a problem that we have, but you know, it's, it's not a new problem, because we can go to that, there we go, the next slide. The title of this is, If Your Brother Sins. That word, if, implies that it's possible that your brother could sin against you. And typically that's going to sometimes turn into a conflict. And so this is not a new problem. This is a problem that's been around for 2,000 years. Offenses and conflict among brethren is an unfortunate reality. And if it's left unchecked, it can decimate a congregation. And so we need to look at what causes it. How, How do we deal with it? And what should we do and we encounter it? Well, this is a huge subject. You, you could start in a lot of places. You could start with psychology and physiology and all kinds of things, sociology, of course. But the best place to start is with an objective truth. And if we go to that objective truth, then we can bypass a lot of 
opinion. And that's really what gets us in trouble a lot of times is opinions and ideas and all I have to say is the word COVID and you know what I mean. And so we have to have an objective truth. We have to go back to the Bible because it's interesting. In the Bible, we see conflict. If we consider, for example, if you'll go to the next slide for me. If we go to the Old Testament, you know, there is conflict that's in the Bible. Now, when I think about this, the first thing I thought of is, is why would God put so much dirty laundry in the Bible? Well, it's because God knows His creation, and He knows that we need to learn from Him. And He knows that there's going to be conflict in different ways. And so we have this, was what does Romans 15, verse 4 tell us? These things are written for time for our learning. So if we just go back and look at some examples, like in Genesis chapter 13, you have Abram and his herdsmen. It says in verse 7 that there was strife between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. But look what Abram says in verse 8. He says, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. Here's family that's had conflict And there's an example right there in the Old Testament that we see. If we go forward up to Genesis chapter 27, and we get to the the interesting story of Esau and Jacob. You see here Rebekah telling Jacob, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Uh, That's conflict, wouldn't you think? And notice what she says on down in verse 45. She says... for you to go away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Conflict. We could go forward in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, where you see another family get into some conflict when Miriam and Aaron had a problem with Moses and the woman that he took for a wife. You continue forward in 2 Samuel chapter 14. And in verses, excuse me, 2 Samuel 15, when Absalom, the son of King David, decides to rise up and take the throne, there's conflict in that family. We can continue forward even into one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 12, when God's special people decide to divide His holy nation, His nation, and they split. So you see, conflict happens... And again, why is this in here? Why would God preserve something like that in the Bible? It's for our learning. So we can see these examples and learn from them. Now anybody with a little bit of New Testament knowledge, if you will, go to the next slide. New Testament knowledge would probably immediately turn to Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Especially whenever you think about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, whenever Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. What is he saying? There's, there's conflict. In fact, did you realize that the entire letter of 1 and 2 Corinthians is dealing with conflict? You talk about dirty laundry. Look at the list that we have up here. They were divided into favorite preacher cliques. They were enamored with world philosophy. They were, intoler- they were tolerating incest. They were starting lawsuits against one another. There were marital problems. Next slide, please. And they continues as you go further into the book 
they had all kinds of conflicts about offering to idols, temptations, to idolatry women that were misbehaving in the, in the worship service. You have gifts, even the spiritual gifts were causing conflict. <laughs> now I want you to go back to that new Christian we were talking about earlier, right? Could you imagine being a citizen in Corinth? Somebody comes to you and teaches you the pure gospel and you're so excited and you become baptized and you become a child of God. And they say, now go attend the Church of Christ near you. And that happens to be the Church of Christ in Corinth. And you walk in expecting this wonderful, loving family. And there's the list that you're having to deal with. Now, what are the lessons there? we stop and think about the lessons that we can take away from Corinth. There's so many. There are so many. You know, first of all, Paul didn't give up on them. You realize that? A lot of preachers, can you imagine some of you new preacher students and you're getting ready to go out into the work, could you imagine going into this work? Oh, man. But you notice that Paul didn't give up on them. In fact, Paul planned to come and visit them and teach them and help them. And that's the attitude we should have. There's a, there's a great lesson right there. It also teaches us that conflict is a reality, right? Conflict's going to happen. And no matter what we do, it's going to happen. We just need to learn how to deal with it properly. Now, of course, when you're talking about conflict, another one that people go to is going to be Acts, right? We're going to go to Acts chapter 15. And that example of Paul and Barnabas. Next slide, please. What do we see here? Two godly men. Godly men in a conflict. Read with me. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with him to the work. Then the contention, there it is. The contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren for the grace of God. Two godly men parted ways. There was dissension. But what do we learn? What's the application? Well, number one, this wasn't over a doctrinal issue. This wasn't doctrine. This was a personal opinion. And that is a lot of times what we see and some of the lessons we can take from this is that personal opinion comes in and that can turn into a divide. It has split congregations before. Over the color of something like the carpet. And that's what we see here. But what do we see? These men had this disagreement. But they agreed to disagree. That's a lost art in itself right there, isn't it? And notice that they both still continued to do the work. It did not distract them from the mission of seeking and saving the lost. And so it shows us that even godly men within the church can have a disagreement but still not lose focus. You notice that Paul didn't get mad and, and, and leave the church. You notice that Barnabas didn't start a newspaper or something like that to start sending out all kinds of things derogatory against Paul. See what we learned there? 
godly men, they can have a disagreement, and yet they continue to preach the gospel. That's going to happen. You're going to have matters of opinion that sometimes are going to vary. Again, one word, COVID. But we need to stop and realize that we need to work with each other. We need to figure out how we can continue in spreading the gospel. You know, there's another one we could think of, and that is Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ have to deal with difficult people, contentions, and problems? He sure did. All right, so the question then becomes, what causes it? And how should we handle it? Next slide, please. You know... There's a lot of things we could say. As I said a minute ago, we could go to psychology and physiology and sociology and all those things. And people often do. But really, it comes right back to the most important thing is, what does the Bible say about it? And if you want a quick answer, what causes it? Well, well most likely it's sin. Not always. But go back and look at those examples that we saw in the Old Testament. Do you think sin was involved in those? It tells, it tells us that there is often. Was there sin involved with Paul and Barnabas? Uh, we don't really know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us you know, what everything there is to know about that situation. But most often there is sin involved. And that's the first thing we need to understand about what causes conflict. And when we understand sin and we realize how much God hates it, don't you feel like that maybe that's what God looks at us sometimes? Like just a couple of little kids fighting over a ball. There's so many more important things. But there are a couple things that, that seem to stand out above all when it comes to conflict. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to show you a few things in here. In that letter of contention, of disputes, there's some other lessons we can learn. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3... And look in verse 5. Notice what Paul says. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. So you know what he teaches us? He teaches us there's such a thing as unrealistic expectations. See, this, there's two things that I, I in, in my mind, that I can take from this that you see often in conflict, and that is unrealistic expectations and selfishness. This is an unrealistic expectation. Remember the context. Go back to chapter 1. What are they doing? They're picking sides, right? Paul's better than Apollos. Paulus is better than, than the others. And so they're picking sides. They're, and Paul is saying, it's not even what you think. It shouldn't even be a question. God gives the increase. This is about God, not about us. So this unrealistic expectation. Now, what's an unrealistic expectation? It's when you have something in your mind about how it should be or how they should say it or what they should do or something that you expect, but it's not based in reality. We do that. And most of the time, have you ever noticed when you start talking about conflict and things like that, most of the time it's always about the other person, Right? Yeah, man, I hope John is hearing this. Boy, I hope Bill's hearing this. Man, Mary and, and, and Lisa, they need to hear this. You ever stop to think maybe we're the problem? That's where this idea of unrealistic expectations needs to be understood. 
And so let's think about that because that's what the Bible tells us, right? The Bible tells us that we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at the speck in someone else's eye when we have a beam sticking out of our eye. It tells us that we need to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. And so with that in mind, let's talk about how do you deal with unrealistic expectations? Here's an effective way. Here's a, a practical application. Next slide, please. Take out a piece of paper and just pick out the person you're having a problem with or whatever you expect and just let it fly. Don't hold back, all right? These are my expectations of Cody Westbrook. I expect punctuality out of Cody, okay? He's got to be on time. I expect him to greet me first thing in the morning. I expect a phone call every day from Cody. I expect him to clean up after him because he's so messy. You know that, right? I expect him to be nice to me. I expect a little more patience. Just let it fly. Don't hold anything back. You know what? That's why we're talking about it. Cody, I expect a neck rub first thing every morning. All right? Now, next slide. We know this. Apply Matthew 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Okay, well, now, <laughs> let's go ahead and mark. Next slide. Let's be real. How can you expect punctuality out of someone if you're not punctual yourself? How, how can you expect somebody to greet you if you don't even greet them yourself? You know, let's be real. I mean, asking for a neck rub, that's not really realistic, is it? Now, not all expectations are unrealistic. There are some that we can expect. I'm a Christian. Cody's a Christian. You can tell I like to pick on Cody, right? I expect him to be nice to me. Why? He's a Christian. I expect him to have patience with me. Why? Because he's a Christian and I, I need to give him the same courtesy. You see what's happening there? So once you do that, you begin to realize, okay, maybe there's an unrealistic expectation involved here. Now here's where this really, where the rubber really hits the road. Next slide. We need to be careful of having unrealistic expectations of our brethren. This is where we get into trouble. You see, a lot of times we expect all the brethren to have the same spiritual maturity that I have. We expect the brethren to have the same biblical understanding across the board. We expect them to have the same, this, this infinite patience. We expect them to have the exact same thinking, the exact same, do everything in the exact same time frame, the same format, the same worship experience. But man, while we're at it, they better have the same political view that I have. They better like the same football team that I do, and they better do everything just like I do. Amen? Isn't that what we do? See, unrealistic expectations. Going back to 1 Corinthians, you skip over a couple of chapters to chapter 6. Here's what we often forget. That little phrase, such were some of you. What's he talking about? Well, if you back up in the context, man, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, extortioners will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You see, we forget that we all come from the outside world. And we forget that, you know, the church, we, we, some, some people expect the church to be like this 
perfect sanctuary for the saints, you know, this, this perfect place. And it's not. It's more like a, like a hospital for the wounded and the hurting. You know, and, and we, we sometimes we, we just we treat each other in terrible ways that, that, that shouldn't be that way. And it's sad that so many people don't understand this. They don't understand unrealistic expectations. They don't understand how damaging this can be. The purpose of the church is to seek and save the lost. Amen? Not lacerate and lose the saved. And we do that. And that's why we need to understand these things. Next slide. Now I mentioned selfishness. Selfishness and unrealistic expectations, they're this kind of intertwined. One could go before the other. This, this is not a, a certain list in a certain order. But do you realize how much selfishness plays a part of conflict? Friends and brethren, we live in a selfish world. The, the whole world is, is all about themselves. So we shouldn't be surprised when it comes into the church and begins to affect relationships and begins to affect pro, or create problems in the church. And so when we stop and think about selfishness, we need to just apply the Bible. And when you apply the Bible and you go to verses, like Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Well, that would take care of selfishness, wouldn't it? You see, it's completely the opposite of the world. We're not supposed to be like the world. So when we let those things in, we're allowing the world, as I say all the time, it's okay for the boat to be in the water. Just don't let the water get in the boat. We're letting the water get in the boat too often. And so we need to be careful. We need to apply the Bible and look out, practice agape love. You know, that's recognizing that you have control over this kind of love. It's not some warm, fuzzy feeling. We'll talk about love more in just a moment. But looking out for the best interest of others. These are the things that we need to understand. And these can cause conflict. And, and understanding things like unrealistic expectations and selfishness. There's a lot of other things that we could add to this. But we're going to move on. Things like miscommunication. You could have a whole lectureship on that, right? But let's, let's continue. So you think about what causes it. Now, the, answer, the next question is, well, what do we do about it? Next slide. You know, what, how, do we, how should we handle conflict? There's going to be conflict. We've established that. It's in the Bible. God knows it's going to happen. That's why he gave us examples of it. Uh, we see it all through the New Testament in several things. Uh, we know it's going to happen. We've now identified that we can even be the problem. So how do we deal with it? Well, the quick and fast answer is, in a Christian manner, Amen. Oh, you've heard preachers say that a million times. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? Next slide. First thing is with the proper perspective. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look in verse 9, and he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building." What's he saying there? He is telling us that we are part of the kingdom. All right? Stay right there in that same one and back up now. 
And look in verse 3. For you are still... Let me back up here. Just a minute. Let's go ahead and go to verse 2. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal? Behaving like mere men. What's he saying? Get your mind out of the gutter. You're thinking worldly. You need to be thinking of heavenly spiritual things. You need to get the right perspective. What does Colossians 3 verse 2 say? It says be thinking and focusing on things above, right? And so we need to have this kingdom concept. Going back now to verse 9, look at that, being that building and part of that. We need to understand there's a bigger picture here than this little problem. But so many people don't understand that. They lose sight of the fact that we are part of a kingdom. We need to have the right perspective. We need to look at this right. Next slide, please. Now, how do we get that? Well, we do it by love. And if you stop and think about getting the right perspective, you can go to verses like Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says we are to be transformed, right? By the renewing of our minds. We need to focus on those things that, that are good and pure. But we need to do it with love. You know the verse. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. So there's that agape love. Again, it's not this warm, fuzzy feeling. It is actually something you control. That's how come we can have verses like Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, etc. This is love your enemy. If you have control of it, then you can make love happen. And so we need to love them. We need to love the lost in a way that, wants, that they want to have what we have, this relationship with God. So much so that it melts away their arguments or anything else. We need to love the brethren in a way that they can see that these dissensions and these problems that they're having are, are silly. We need to love everybody in such a way that they seek God's forgiveness. Amen? And so we need to treat each other with love. How do you deal with conflict? How are you supposed to do it? Number one, number one you need to get your perspective right. And number two, you need to deal with them with love. And next slide, number three. How do you do that? Developing a servant's heart. Once again, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For we are God's fellow workers, God's field, you're God's building. You can go that whole passage where he's talking about, we're just ministers. You see, we're all working together for the same thing. We're all striving to get to heaven, amen? And so if we're working together, then we need to have a servant's heart, and so often we don't. We need to understand that sometimes we need to bend. We need to, to help, them under, help them in a way that maybe it's not comfortable. We need to do things that helps them. If, you're, if your brother sins against you, well, how, how do you do this? Well, number one, we need to become accountable to God. Right, to develop a servant's heart, you need to understand where you are in the grand scheme of things. As Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. You need, you're accountable to God. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. You know, another thing to develop a servant's heart is to pray. Going back to Matthew chapter 5, when he says, love your enemies, notice he says, pray for those 
who calls you strife. We need to pray. I don't know if you've ever been involved in a conflict and had the opportunity, especially if it's among brethren, where it starts to get heated and, and they're going at each other or something. You know, one of the best things you can do is say, brethren, let's stop and let's pray. Well, that'll calm things down, won't it? Will that bring your perspective back? We need to not only pray that we can have a servant's heart, but we need to use prayer in conflict. And we also need to be kind. You know, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, am I? These are all things that we all know. It's right there in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. We are to be kindly affectionate to one another, tender-hearted. That gets rid of conflict and problems. And now, next slide, number four, you follow the biblical pattern. Go with me to Matthew chapter 18. That's what this lesson was titled, right? If your brother sins against you. So you go to Matthew chapter 18, and we all know the verse beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Go and tell him it's fault. Now, I want you to notice one thing. I've been talking now for about, what, 20 minutes or so? All right, preacher's count. Just now getting to Matthew 18. What was the, the topic? Conflict, right? So we got conflict. Oh, Matthew 18. Let's go to Matthew 18. You notice I didn't go to Matthew 18 first. You know Why? Because Matthew 18 does not work without a servant's heart. Matthew 18 does not work without love. Matthew 18 does not work without the proper perspective. Matthew 18 doesn't work if you don't understand things like unrealistic expectations and selfishness. Matthew 18 will not work without all those things we've been talking about. Amen? So... Once you have that perspective, with that in mind, understanding those basic principles, now let's look at Matthew 18. You're thinking, wow, this is going to be a long sermon. <laughs> no, it's, it's all right there. Look at the first thing. If your brother sins, so there's the possibility that it's going to happen against you. The next word is a word that so many people gloss right over. You know, we can overread the Bible. We'll read the Bible and we'll just read right over something. If your brother sins against you, what's the next word in your Bible? Go. See, that again is totally the opposite of the world. What do we do? If our brother sins against me, oh, I can't believe he did that. Oh, man. I'm going to go tell everybody about it, right? I'm going to sit right here. He owes me an apology. And then when he doesn't come, I'm going to get more mad, right? And it's going to fester. And then I'm going to hold a grudge. And I'm going to tell more people. And I'm going to keep waiting. And I ain't doing anything until he repents. Is that not the attitude that we have a lot, a lot of times? But what does the Bible say? What is the biblical pattern? If your brother sins against you, you're the one in the offense, right? You're the one who's been hurt. You're the one that's had the, this contention, you go to him and tell him the fault. Oh, we don't like to do that, do we? 
I don't know if you've been involved in conflict within the church, and I pray that you never have to. But if you have, like some of us have seen, it is not fun. It is not nice. It is not good. And most of the time, it's because they won't go and talk to the brother who offended them. And so what do we learn? We learn a lot, I hope, from the Bible of this, this key thing that we're supposed to do. And that is we are to reconcile with each other. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacekeepers. We are to be peacekeepers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. I want you to look right there in Matthew 18. And look in verse 20. This is that verse that we like, to, we like to talk about. Everybody uses this verse out of context, right? We learned that in preaching school, right? They, this, this verse has to do with conflict. Okay, it does. That's the correct context, but how does that apply to me? It applies to me with Jesus is with me. It applies to me in that I need to be like Jesus. And so when there's a conflict, if you literally will ask yourself... Where is Jesus in this? Would that change your opinion or the way you approach the problem? Whether you're involved in the conflict or you're helping somebody in the conflict, if you were to say, where is Jesus in this, brethren? Or where is Jesus in this, brother? What can I do to be like Jesus? Don't all these things start to happen naturally if we just be like Jesus? And so these are the steps that we have in the Bible for dealing with conflict. Again, I don't think I've told you anything that you didn't already know. I just hope I've laid them out in a way that will help you remember these things more readily when we do run into conflict. It's an unfortunate reality that's going to happen in our lives. And and we need to understand that if it's not taken care of, it can cause lots of problems in the church. But you know... The most important thing that we need to understand about conflict is love and forgiveness. Those are the two hardest things to get. But have you ever thought that if you can learn forgiveness, then you please God? If you can develop a forgiving heart, then you become closer to God. And here's one of the things that just kills me about conflict in the church. And and again, I've seen it. It really has come out so much during this pandemic crisis we've been involved in. And and just the way people talk to each other and and the way they treat each other instead of forgiving each other. And it made me think of something, a reality that hit me. You know, you're not going to keep somebody out of heaven if you don't forgive them. You can keep yourself. You can wind up not in heaven if you don't forgive them. Have you ever thought about that? What did Jesus teach us? We need to forgive others as God has forgiven us. I hope this has helped you. It's been a real pleasure to be back in my alma mater and to see all many of you and, and to meet some new faces. But above all, I hope that this has encouraged you today to think about the scriptures when it comes to conflict. 
And I hope it's given you some tools that you'll be able to use whenever you encounter conflict. And if that will help your faith and help somebody else's faith, then to God be the glory. Amen.